Uh, well, good evening, everyone, and welcome uh, to Peace Talks, uh, virtual Peace Talks. Uh, it's very exciting that we can still all gather together in this uh, month of April. Uh, so this is a welcome to this Peace Talks and thanks to uh, Byron for uh, facilitating having you all come in um, to this session uh, for a great conversation tonight. And so uh, I'd like to start uh, by acknowledging country. And so tonight I sit on the lands of the Gadigal peoples uh, and tonight as you have joined virtually through this Zoom call, wherever you stand or sit on these lands now called Australia, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of over 300 nations. The traditional custodians have been and continue to be stewards on behalf of the almighty creator since time immemorial. I respect and honour the elders and leaders past, present and future. And my hope is that through this acknowledgement, you also respect and honour those elders. During this time, I pray courage, resilience and resources to the elders of all Aboriginal communities, including in our capital cities, as the intergenerational memory of smallpox, Spanish flu, swine flu and now COVID-19 show that our health is not equal to non-Indigenous peoples. As we live through a global pandemic together, we lament the effects of sickness and disease as we are reminded of the destruction, death and disease that arrived on these shores 250 years ago next week. And that this continues through acts of colonisation and continues through the gap in health between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal peoples today. As I look to the sky where the sounds of aeroplanes uh, are less and where we can hear more loudly the birds and the trees and the wind through the trees, we are reminded that for thousands of years, the sounds of greed and profit did not exist. As we are reminded of social distancing, we acknowledge the distance in relationship between Aboriginal peoples and non-Aboriginal peoples in these lands now called Australia today. And so, as we listen, as we connect, as we form community on stolen land, we acknowledge the existing inequality between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal peoples before COVID-19. And may this lived reality help to drive us to take action against injustice as we walk together in friendship for truth, justice, love and hope. May it be so as we acknowledge country together tonight. Uh, so tonight here at Peace Talks, uh, for those that, of you that might be joining Peace Talks for the first time, Peace Talks uh, is part of Paddington Anglican uh, Church uh, here on Gadigal Country in part of the lands now called Sydney. Uh, and Peace Talks is a monthly uh, talk uh, about peace, political, ethical, artistic and creative engagement. And so it's wonderful that you could join us uh, here tonight. Uh, we will try and keep uh, meeting online as Peace Talks. So please do keep following our Facebook page at Peace Talks Paddo, uh, as well as uh, the uh, website, uh, paddington.church slash Peace Talks. And that's where we'll be advertising the Peace Talks um, uh, upcoming and into the future. 
Uh, and so tonight uh, we're in for a treat. We have Rosie Claire Shorter uh, to talk with us and a Q&A afterwards. And Rosie Claire Shorter is uh, presenting on marginalization and grace, centers and peripheries in a world turned inside out. Uh, and so you can read Rosie's full bio on the Peace Talks event, and uh, it's incredible. We're grateful to have uh, Rosie with us tonight, but I thought I'd do a bit of a different intro. Uh, Rosie uh, is a lover of cats, but not all cats, specifically her mum's cat, Mittens, uh, as well as uh, those of you that know Rosie, she's a lover of Hamilton. Uh, she introduced me to Hamilton and I've seen her post lots about Hamilton and talk to others about Hamilton. Uh, and she is absolutely rocking incredible earrings tonight. And uh, she's super excited because these earrings have a special story. Uh, and when she wears them, she gets to return the gift. These earrings were a gift uh, up in Darwin. Uh, and the person that gave them to her said whenever she was to wear them, uh, to remember every day how good God is. And so uh, please virtually welcome Rosie Claire Shorter to share with us tonight here at Peace Talks. So this talk began life as a proposal for a now cancelled conference in New Zealand that would be hosted by the International Association for the History of Religion with the broad theme of centres and peripheries. It would sit alongside three other talks, which combined would explore the idea of centres and peripheries in Protestant Australia, in Protestant Christianity in Australia, along the lines of gender, sexuality and race. Peace Talks was going to be a panel as well, um, but as we know, circumstances have changed. So instead, you've just got me in an empty church on your screen. Um, as Brooke said, I'm Rosie Clare. I'm a PhD candidate at uh, Western Sydney University in a religion and society research cluster. I study Anglicanism as a lived religion or faith in Sydney. And this has involved attending three churches every Sunday and having cups of tea and hipster coffees with other Anglicans as I ask them about their experiences of church, faith, leadership, marriage, complementarianism, um, all of the things, because I'm interested in how people are living or doing faith and how gender and sexuality is part of that experience of faith. My background is in cultural studies and I do sociology, not theology. So even though the material I look at speaks to theological ideas, I'm more interested in the social consequences of faith. So that's how church shapes people and how people shape church. So given it's just me tonight, we'll be thinking about centres and peripheries in the Anglican Diocese of Sydney and what gender and sexuality might have to do with those spaces. In particular, we'll think about what we can learn about living and sharing faith if we listen to some of the people who occupy some sort of marginal or peripheral space in the diocese. These are still ideas that I'm working through, so please think of this more as a springboard or for further discussion, a first chapter in a story yet to come, rather than a final chapter that closes or ends the story. In this talk, I'm aiming to contribute something to a conversation on what it might be to do church and evangelism, to teach and engage the church and the wider public from the peripheries or the margins 
or from a space of non-power. I'd like to think about how that might be different from what it is like to do church and evangelism from the center or a place of power. I'll be starting by thinking about centers and peripheries. I'll develop this by getting you to cast your mind back to the Archbishop's presidential address to Synod in 2019, which I will consider as an example of teaching and engaging from the center. I'll look at the frequently quoted section, which suggested that those, specifically those bishops, with a certain view on marriage and sexuality should leave the church so that the church would not be ruined, but could continue to evangelize. For me, this paragraph brings together ideas of sexuality, right belief, and evangelism, and it raises some questions about how these might be connected. To think through this connection, I'll reflect on some work on evangelicalism in America, which explores links between belief, belonging, gender, and sexuality. And just so you're aware, that material does briefly refer to both domestic and spiritual violence. I'll then return to our local context. I'll consider a handful of responses that I've collected in the initial course of my PhD fieldwork. Each response that I draw on um, expresses some level of discontent and disagreement. Some people objected to both the mode of expression or method of engaging and the content, while others were concerned mainly with the mode of expression and engaging rather than the content which they might have actually agreed with. I want to make it clear from the outset that this is not a definitive representation of every possible response. It's not even a definitive representation of everyone I've had the opportunity to interview. That would take a lot longer than we have time for. Today, I'm focusing on the views of people that I've interviewed, which contrast with the view from the center or the example from the center, in this case, the presidential address. I will show that for the people I interviewed, being at the periphery or the margins did not impinge on their ability to lead, teach, care, show grace or evangelize. Rather, it makes it possible. Let's turn now to the idea of centers and peripheries. You could define the centers and peripheries of Christianity in general or the Sydney Anglican Diocese in particular in many ways. You could think in terms of numbers, whether Christianity is at the center of a society or at its peripheries. Just this week, I heard a sermon where we were reminded that while Christianity had an unimpressive and unnoticed beginning, that is, it was a movement on the periphery of the Roman Empire, it's now the world's largest religion. You could think in terms of social or theological influence, which is what I'll be mainly doing today. But even that could be done at varying levels. For instance, you could consider influence within the diocese, between the diocese and the national church, or the place of the church in Australian society, or the place of the diocese within global evangelicalism. I don't think the centers and peripheries are necessarily fixed spaces or neatly defined categories. Uh, they exist in relationship to each other, and there's probably some overlap and movement between them. As background, we should remember that the diocese has historically been privileged as a center of religious, legal, and moral authority in New South Wales, as an institution which should, and which did, shape and influence society. 
Sydney Anglican minister Michael Jensen has written in his book, Sydney Anglicanism, that Anglicanism carries within its DNA an expectation that it's part of the social order and that it contributes to social cohesion. Stuart Piggin and David Linder, who've recently written an excessive history of evangelicalism in Australia, argue that evangelicalism has been a strong and pervasive influence on shaping not only the heart and soul of the Australian nation, but also its body. More recently, through movements such as GAFCON, the diocese could be thought of as a centre of global evangelicalism. Pigan and Linda even refer to Sydney-led initiatives such as the Ministry Training Scheme as a global export. Today, I'm thinking of centres and peripheries in terms of influence, leadership and public voice, mainly within the diocese. So, at the centre are those who formally lead and shape the diocese, those who have a position of leadership or authority and who typically have access to public platforms from which to speak to speak to the diocese and occasionally to speak on behalf of the diocese. Usually, but not always, theologically trained men. At the periphery are those who do not have the same platforms from which to speak, or those who do not align with what is taught at the center. Those who actively seek to do church and evangelism in other ways. In other words, at the center are those who have or who expect to have power to shape and influence church priorities, doctrine, mission, and culture. Those who shape and influence what we think of as the normal, good, correct, or acceptable ways of understanding the Bible, doing church, and doing evangelism. The peripheries are those who do not align with the center. Feminist theorist Sarah Ahmed teaches us that when we do and desire what our culture tells us is good and acceptable, we're reassured that we are good and acceptable. On the flip side, if you don't align, you're suspect, you're out of place, maybe you don't belong. Emily, who's a Christian in her 30s, recalls that at the Anglican churches she grew up in, she never felt like she belonged. And she says, this was because you could only really belong when you fit a specific mold and you were, you know, well off, got your family together, married, mentally well enough to be participating in all of the programmed ministries. At the centre, there is a right way to behave and belong. The joke we used to tell on my beach mission team was, there are two ways to live, but only one way to tell it. At the centre are those we most often hear from and learn from. Those at the centre have power and influence because they are who we listen to and who we expect will teach us what is good, biblical and acceptable. Debbie, who's been a Christian for over 40 years, says that when I became a Christian, I noticed after a while that if a man was talking, I'd listen to him, but I wouldn't listen to a woman because the man would be saying the important things, wouldn't he? Phoebe, a young woman uh, who's involved in several voluntary ministry activities, explained it like this. We love to turn anyone we can into a celebrity, so it's no surprise we turn preachers into celebrities. Today, I will reflect and include some of the words of people we in the church don't typically treat as authorities, people we don't turn into celebrities, although they may be authority figures and celebrities in their own circles. This will mean listening and learning to pe from people who, because of their gender or sexuality, live and lead from the peripheries, in this case, Christian women and queer Christians. 
Of course, you might want to argue with me later as to whether or not clergy and bishops and preachers in general have any power or celebrity from which to influence a parish or a diocese. And I'm happy to have that conversation, but for now, we'll assume that they do. As one woman on church staff said to me, while the church in no way occupies the same sort of space or authority that it used to in the rest of the world, within the church itself, male ministers occupy positions of enormous power. This is why I'm now turning to the presidential address as an example of leading and teaching from the center or from a place of relative power. On Monday, the 14th of October, 2019, Glenn Davies delivered his presidential address to Synod. The address was 26 pages long and the words that would make headlines come at the end of 10 pages on the appointment and duties of bishops. Bishops, we were told, at least seven times, are to be guardians of the faith. As Davies speaks of guarding and protecting, he also spoke of those bishops who'd failed in this duty. Those who have tolerated, affirmed, and finally blessed same-sex unions. If we are to align with the view at the center, we're told we cannot bless same-sex marriages for the simple reason that we cannot bless sin. He continues, friends, we've entered treacherous waters. I fear for the stability of the Anglican Church in Australia. And then came the words that would appear in the Christian publication Eternity News just a few hours later, and in The Guardian, The Age, The Sydney Morning Herald, and the ABC Religion and Ethics website the next day. My own view is that if people wish to change the doctrine of our church, they should start a new church or join a church more aligned with their own views. But do not ruin the Anglican Church by abandoning the plain teaching of Scripture. Please leave us. We have far too much work to do in evangelizing Australia to be distracted by the constant pressure to change our doctrine in order to satisfy the lusts and pleasures of the world. One of the ideas that comes through in this section of the speech is that a person's view on marriage and sexuality are indicative of whether or not they're following or abandoning Scripture. Another is that a wrong view of marriage might ruin the church and defeat Christian efforts to evangelize. And yet another goes back to this idea that it is in the DNA of the Anglican church to shape, nurture, and evangelize society. At the center, the work of evangelizing, whether or not the church grows or is ruined, whether you're welcomed or asked to leave, seems in some way to have something to do with your view on marriage and sexuality. At the center, we're told that those bishops and maybe those people who disagree on marriage are abandoning scripture and giving into culture. They're potentially ruining the church and not engaging society or evangelizing. At the center is the view that when those at the peripheries do not agree on marriage or sexuality, they're not committed to scripture or evangelizing, and maybe they don't even belong. The following Sunday, all of the churches that I attend for field work responded in some way and all expressed varying levels of discontent. Yet not one expressed an idea that scripture was irrelevant or that they were intending to abandon it. No one suggested that they did not want to do the work of evangelizing. A young adult leading prayers prayed that God would help us engage in dialogue rather than debate. A minister holds up a copy of Joel Hollier's book, A Place at His Table, a book which advocates for the inclusion of queer Christians and recommends it as readable and theolog theologically rigorous. Elsewhere, a senior minister invites everyone to join him for a conversation after church, following media coverage of the Archbishop's address. While presuming, presumably agreeing with much of the content, 
He calls the speech ill-advised and apologizes for any hurt caused. At the end of the meeting, a member of the congregation prays that the church would not be split over an issue that was not a salvation issue. So is sexuality a salvation issue? Will a wrong view potentially ruin the church? On our way into the meeting, a parishioner had said to me, I feel like a lot of people here wouldn't agree with the Archbishop. And he continues, I think it's good to disagree. I feel a lot of evangelicals say, if you don't agree with us, you're a heretic. It's a, is it really the case that disagreements on sexuality or disagreements with leadership in general mean you need to leave the church? Do our views on marriage, gender and sexuality determine the authenticity of our belief and our place in the church? Research on other evangelical faith communities links the maintenance of belief and belonging to the regulation of gender and sexuality. Disagreements around gender and sexuality can be understood as disagreements on a whole variety of core doctrines. Therefore, disagreements lead to questioning about who truly belongs to the faith community. For instance, Amy Derogatis, an American religious and cultural studies professor who has surveyed a vast collection of evangelical marriage and relationship advice books from 1950 to the present day, uh, suggests that readers of such advice literature are taught that following God's model of purity prior to marriage and sexual pleasure within marriage is both a sign of and a reward for godliness. Both purity outside of marriage and pleasure within it are ways that evangelicals can witness to others. She also talks about the regulation and surveillance of gendered and sexual behaviours, and she suggests that evangelicals are obsessed with the proper practice of heterosexuality. Being heterosexual is never enough. Boundaries must be policed, desires are examined, acts are regulated, and bodies provide testimonial sites. How you dress, how you talk, when you have sex, whether you conceive, these practices take on theological meaning and are continually interpreted in the context of scripture, the individual's life, the family, and the community, and the world. According to Derogatus, this evangelical literature suggests that getting marriage and sexuality right is an indication that you have your theology right. Similarly, in her study of the now-dissolved American megachurch Mars Hill, founded and led by Pastor Mark Driscoll, feminist anthropologist Jessica Johnson assesses the uses of emotion, surveillance, and voluntary work as a means of shaping and disciplining behaviour particularly the gendered and sexual behaviours of those in the church. Johnson uses this amazing term, biblical porn, to refer to the emotion work that went into mediating, branding and embodying Driscoll's teaching on biblical masculinity, femininity and sexuality as a social imaginary marketing strategy and biopolitical instrument. She reports that under the leadership of Driscoll, sexually abused women were taught to seek biblical counseling so as to perform their blessed role as sexually available wives, offering spiritual salvation to their husbands by embodying the fantasy that sex within Christian marriage is always free and pleasurable. Johnson makes it clear that it's possible for sexuality, gendered identity, and Christian identity to be entwined. Correct gendered and sexual behavior can be read as a sign of correct religious belief and belonging. But what about our context here in Sydney? Can those at the peripheries disagree on sexuality and still do evangelism? Can they still contribute to the church? Can they still belong? 
One of the consistent arguments made by Piggin and Linda is that contradictions have always been and continue to be present within evangelicalism in Australia. Throughout the 20th century, this includes diversity of thought and practice between clergy and laity on a wide range of issues. As Piggin and Linda lead us toward the present day, they demonstrate increasing disunity within Australian evangelicalism, particularly over questions of gender, sexuality and marriage. At the same time, they show the increasing prominence of Sydney Diocese internationally. Their double-pronged provocation, as they analyse the Sydney Diocese in the 21st century, is that although parishioners were encouraged to partake in a formal evangelistic mission, many Australians, they say, had forgotten or never learnt how to connect with the wider culture they were now trying to engage and that Sydney Anglicanism grew internationally rather than locally, not because of a commitment to mission, but, they contend, due to the vexed issue of homosexuality. In other words, according to Pegan and Linda, Anglicans in Sydney had forgotten how to engage and forgotten how to evangelise. The church's growing reputation and becoming a global leader, not because of how they teach and share an evangelistic message of salvation, but because of what they taught on sexuality. Perhaps Pigan and Linda are right. It may be that Anglicans have forgotten how to engage and evangelise. Perhaps the Archbishop is right. It might be possible that many people are abandoning scripture. Maybe gender and sexuality do have something to do with this, but I'd like to suggest that the link is more complex than that the view at the centre allows. I'm going to turn now to the responses of people, particularly but not exclusively women, who were uncomfortable with or who disagreed with the presidential address. Remembering that the address is an example of the centre, these responses constitute examples of views from the periphery or the margin. Given that the church and its leaders are used to having people listen and having power to shape or influence the church, and potentially society as well, then the people at the periphery who I focus on now are people who we could say lead and evangelize from a place of non-power. In this, I owe a great debt to Erica Hemence, an assistant minister here in Sydney, who has suggested that the church as a whole needs to learn about being in and leading from a position of non-power. If you want to go on a theological exploration of that idea, I recommend to you the book she recommended to me, which is Truth Speaks to Power by Walter Brueggemann. Through this section, I hope to show that those who, because of their gendered and sexual experiences, or because of their, their views on marriage and sexuality, are at the periphery or the margins, have not abandoned scripture, and that they are, in fact, keen to see the church and individual Christians thrive. While they may have disagreed with some of the ideas and methods that are taught at the centre, they're actively searching out new ways to engage, to care, and to evangelise. Individual parishioners who spoke to me told me the address felt personal, even allowing for the fact that the Archbishop clarified he was speaking to other bishops. One parishioner said, he shouldn't have been so careless with his words. He said people, he didn't say bishops or clergy, he said people very clearly. In church, the week after synod, a woman turns to the person next to her and says, I want to write to the archbishop and say, get your priorities together. There doesn't seem to be any gentleness. 
Margaret, who's in her 70s, said, I certainly took it very personally at first. I was absolutely horrified, even knowing that the Archbishop had said, I wasn't talking to individuals. I was thinking, yes, you were. Two weeks after Synod, I'm lucky enough to have morning tea with Margaret and her husband. Margaret says, I'm at the stage where I just feel embarrassed to say that I go to church. Her husband states that his attitude is not to leave, it's to hang in and subvert. To which Margaret replies, mine is stay and defy. At the margins, there is hurt, horror and embarrassment, but there is a desire for gentleness and a desire for change. There is overall a desire to stay. A woman who works for a church says to me, if I'm honest, I feel really disenfranchised with the Anglican church. She drifts between seeing this as the fault of individual leaders and churches as a collective to which she belongs, saying, I think it's because of the things that the Archbishop has done or what the majority of churches do and practice, how they react, how I think we're being fueled by fear and not by faith. Why are we so scared of people? Why are we so scared of being challenged? I think Jesus was the opposite of that. He was never scared of anyone. At the margins, there's frustration, but there's also hope in Jesus. Another woman who works for a church called the address a misstep on a number of fronts and said, even if you allow for us to have misunderstood elements of it, that very fact, the misunderstandability, that's problematic. But even the message itself is problematic, even if understood correctly. She saw this as part of a wider problem in our churches where, she said, male clergy tend to occupy their positions in a more uncontested way, that they have probably a too rigid way of thinking about their relationship to their audience, which does often allow for them to speak to others, but not for others to speak to them. I asked her how, stepping away from this particular moment, it might be possible to engage or relate differently. She replied, I think there are lots of ways in which you can conceptualize our relationship to the world. This is not a new or a radical thing to say, but even just to think, is my position one of teaching, teaching someone who needs to learn, or is it as a conversation partner, or is this a war, or is it a collaboration? And I think biblically speaking, there are lots of ways for us to frame our understanding, to ask what is the church's place in the world? What's our obligation to each other as family? So I think not just speaking to, but relating with. This view was also reflected by a parishioner, Emily, who said that, I appreciate everyone must have different concept of Anglican. But when I think of Sydney Anglican, I think of things like women can't preach. I think of really rigid hierarchical structures. I think of strong emphasis on leadership. She contrasted this with the Anglican church she currently attends, saying it doesn't feel Anglican as it's opposite to her view of the centre. Shifting away from the centre has changed how she engages and how she feels about evangelism. She says that previously, the reason I was telling my friends about God was because I believed they would go to hell. But now her reasons have shifted and she explains, for one, I see God as more loving and more generous than I did before. And that means I'm more naturally inclined to talk about my loving God, who is merciful, loving, and gracious. So that leads me to more naturally evangelize in a way that isn't forced. And it also gives me a confidence or a peace that I don't have to constantly be telling people about God. 
It's meant that I can have a deeper and more natural relationship with non-Christian people that aren't premised on the need to convert them. At the margins, there's conversation, there's family, and there's relationship. Steph Fenton is the co-chair of the Sydney branch of Equal Voices, an ecumenical group working for the full inclusion of LGBTQIA Christians into the Australian church. Steph surprised me by saying her overwhelming response to the presidential address was one of relief. Having previously attended a church where she was told she was unwelcome to take communion because she had a girlfriend, Steph knows what it's like to be asked to leave. She compared the address to the types of conversations she and others have heard so many times in private. She said here the leader of the Anglican Church in Sydney is saying very loudly what is said to everyone behind closed doors. Now we can actually have a conversation about it and how appalling it is. She also responded with prayer. She shows me a section of a prayer she led at her church in which she asked that the Archbishop would be comforted in the face of public reaction. I ask what it's like to pray something like that. And she replies, I've been treated in a way that I don't want anyone to be treated. And that includes the person who treats me this way. So if I'm saying the body of Christ, we're one, and that someone else can't say that I don't belong and that I, I think I should be treated like a family member, I also want to be treating them as if they are my family, no matter how hard that is to say. At the margins, there's family, there's pain, but there's also grace. When I asked Erica Hemens to expand on what it might mean for the church to be in a position of non-power, she gave me the example of looking how women, particularly women who have been in unsafe and abusive relationships, participate in church life. She says, when you engage as a woman in the church, you never really hold to a full position of authority as the way that you make change or influence. You see an alternative way of speaking powerfully or compellingly, even if it's from the margin. She suggests that women who've been abused in the church have had to develop strong muscles of grace and flexibility. Erica says they know what it means to work through rawness and still contribute something helpful and constructive to the church. That is a skill set the church needs for society, and that's why those women are the future of the church. At the margin, there's pain, but there are valuable skills learned at extreme personal cost. Remember the woman who said she felt disenfranchised. She'd previously been in an abusive relationship with someone in her church. She recalls that despite her church leadership initially not believing her and standing her down from ministry, telling her that she'd sinned sexually, she persisted in advocating that they put a domestic violence policy in place. She said, I made a stance that I wouldn't leave until that happened. I have a great sense that I'm not just saved to Jesus, but I'm saved to be among his people and that people need to do better. I feel like I have the capacity and the experience and a voice, not that I think so highly of myself, but I can see the times in which I've been able to bridge some things and I see how God has helped me to be an agent of change. At the margin, there are valuable skills learned at extreme personal cost. At the margin, there's a desire for care and a desire for change. When Steph Fenton reflected on the Synod Address, care, change, love and welcome were ever-present themes. She said, I noticed queer Christians being incredibly hurt by this message. 
and then queer Christians, along with their allies, saying, this is a weird message. Why are we telling people to leave the church when our one message should be come on in? She continued, I think there's a narrative that tells us how to love people biblically is to quote Bible verses at them. I can count on my fingers the amount of conversations I've had with people where I've just had scripture quoted at me at a time when I'm scared and worried and all I need is for you to say, I'm here for you. Instead, we're told, well, you know what the scripture says you need to do. Thinking further, Steph says, biblically loving someone is about journeying with people. That's how Jesus loved people, to sit around a table and eat with them when they were sinners, when they were told they didn't belong as part of the community of worshippers. Jesus was there hanging out. I think there is a lot we can do to shift the narrative on what the church has sold as love. She describes her ministry through equal voices as creating a space for people which they didn't think they would find. At the margin and along the periphery, there's restoration, healing, welcome, and community. Emily repeatedly said that Jesus is radically inclusive and that she bases this on her experience and her reading of scripture. I was a kid who had nothing, no family, came from a real sort of poverty-based background, and I couldn't offer anything to Jesus. I didn't feel deserving of Jesus' love. So Jesus was radically inclusive to me, and I see throughout scriptures that he's radically inclusive to everyone. Emily sees no limit to that inclusivity, saying, once you start creating limits, that's when you become unloving. That's when you start creating barriers to people coming to Christ. I would never want to put a limit on where Jesus' love could go. At the margin, there's love and radical inclusivity anchored in experience and scripture. Phoebe, who's in her 20s and describes herself as a fairly liberal Christian because she has some non-Anglican rogue views and what she calls a love-hate relationship with the diocese, says for her, demonstrating God's love simply means showing up for people, supporting people physically, financially, emotionally, and with hospitality. We love to have people here and we love to have them feel loved by us. Phoebe and her husband have a Bible verse that they're striving to embody in their marriage. She shows me the text. It's framed and on display in their lounge room. It's 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 8. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel, but our lives as well. We started tonight with the presidential address as an example of the center. And we saw that at the center, there was an assumption that those bishops who disagreed on marriage are abandoning scripture and giving into culture, that they're potentially, ru potentially ruining the church and not evangelizing. Then we saw that Piggin and Linda suggested that Anglicans in Sydney had forgotten how to engage with society. As we listen to those who, because of their gendered or sexual identity and their gendered and sexual experiences at the peripheries and the margins, we heard stories of people who love their church, who are keen to be Christian witnesses, and who are constantly working out how to be true to scripture, how to participate in church, how to love and how to live, how to engage and how to evangelize. For the people I interviewed, being at the periphery or the margins did not impinge on their ability to teach, lead, care, show grace or evangelize. Rather, it made it possible. 
They were there doing faith at the margins, evangelizing at the margins, showing grace at the margins and leading from the margins. At the margins and the peripheries, there are valuable lessons and examples of faith, grace and evangelism. Some are very everyday and some are extraordinary, but we might miss them altogether if we only ever looked at the centres. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Rosie, uh, for your presentation tonight. Uh, we've had a number of uh, questions coming through. Mm -hmm. uh, so if people would like to ask a question, we do have a number already, but if you do have a question, please send it to me privately uh, in a chat message and I'll ask the question. So, uh, Rosie, our first question uh, tonight uh, is around centres and peripheries. Mm -hmm. Do all social groups always have centres and peripheries? I.e. do all social groups always have those who belong and those who don't, or those with power and those without? Um, and do you have any uh, thoughts on how to create a church without centres that create the ins and outs? Easy one to start with. Yeah. Yeah. I like it's a small question, right? <laughs> um I mean, my, I feel like in terms of other social groups, I would just be speaking from my experience and I, I feel like I've seen exclusion in all sorts of groups. I went to a private girls high school. We are very good at in groups and out groups in those spaces. I'm not really in a place to comment on um, other other groups in society, although I think, um, you know, certainly from from what I've read in terms of how um, how people relate more generally, um, we we usually have a certain power dynamic between us. Um, often that comes down to uh, ideas around competition. Um, so I teach, I tutor a first year sociology class and uh, our definition of power that we have in that class is that of course it's, it is a contested term, but usually having power means that you have the ability to get what you want or to get other people to do what you want, even if they don't really want to. Um, and um, that part of the reason power circulates in groups of people is that we often think we're in competition with other people in that group and that the resources are scarce and those resources might be money or um property capital you know property forms of capital they might be um opportunities to speak it might it might be all sorts of things um and that if you view other people in the society as having more of the resources that you value you'll probably be in competition with them in some way um and there will be some sort of power dynamic that says the people with more of those resources are the powerful or popular people and the people without those resources tend to be on the edge i suppose that one way we can counteract that is by um, adopting what you might call an abundance philosophy, where you uh, try to live your life assuming there is an abundance of good things rather than a scarcity. Rosie, um, there's sometimes just a delay in muting, unmuting, so um, please bear with me, but thank you uh, for that answer. Um, and 
as an Aboriginal woman, I think there's a lot I could say about how we could learn from Indigenous cultures about abundance and scarcity and the uh, how to uh, uh, live respect of, respectfully with resources. Um, but uh, maybe our voice is on the periphery. Uh, so I've got another question um, that kind of follows on from that one. What are the social forces that drive the periphery and what are the social forces that drive the centre? Big question. I kind of, I also kind of want to acknowledge the fact that the conference panel that I would have been on would have had Brooke on it and we would have heard from Brooke about um, Aboriginal Christian peoples and leaders and how they are either at peripheries or centres in um, in our churches. And I'm deeply sad that we don't have that. <laughs> um, uh, I think when I think about the the interviews that I've done and to be completely honest at this point in time most of the people I have so far interviewed are probably people who would put themselves in some sort of more marginal category um and I I think they would in terms of their Christian lives and Christian work I think that they would say that they really are motivated by um a desire to to be with people, to connect with people, to be in conversation and relationship um, with people, um, you know, and I hope that that came through in some of the people's, um, like some of the extracts that I shared today. Um, certainly, I mean, some of those women were people who um, are employed by churches and so you could argue that they do have some access to public platforms, um, even if it's in a very limited way. Um, I feel like they're probably, I don't know, I'm not, I don't want to do any amateur psychology here about what motivates those people. Um, I mean, I feel like the very kind of textbook sociology answer is usually that, you know, uh, if you do have a kind of scarcity mentality, you usually want more of the things you value, whether that's money or whether that's access to public speaking or whether it's control um but that's a very kind of universalized answer and i'm sorry if that doesn't answer the question <laughs> another follow-on question and you kind of started to touch on this but i think it's um a bit of a different question too that you haven't exactly um covered uh, but women have historically been on the margins of the church in many denominations, uh, but have been central to the day-to-day -day work of the church at the same time. Why do you think those who keep the church going are not acknowledged when those who take a more public role are respected? <laughs> yeah, wow, how long have we got? <laughs> um, okay, so the question was that women have... Um, I'm just hoping I've got this right, that women have often been at the centre of the kind of day-to-day -day running of churches. That's often um, through voluntary work, um, things like running playgroups and teaching Sunday school, providing morning tea. Um, uh, I feel like when I reflect on the, the conversation I had with Phoebe, the woman who said that we love to give people celebrity and we love to give preachers celebrity, one of the other things she also said was that... Um, people are usually really, they like to feel loved. So they're happy to take that love and celebrity. So I think there's a few kind of dynamics going on here in that once you give someone authority and celebrity, they tend to enjoy it. Um, 
there are so many kind of, I suppose, more socialist analyses of power and feminist analyses of power we could do about like the valuing of women's work, um, which uh, historically tends to be undervalued um, and underpaid. And I think that's replicated in church scenarios to an extent. I'm trying to think of, there's an article or on um, an evangelical community in the UK. I want to say Wales, but it might've just been West England. So that's really bad of me. Um, but where one of the things they, they were talking about was essentially, uh, and this is, this is quite controversial, <laughs> um, essentially that, uh, you know, churches like any institution or organization in our society also have to exist in what is essentially a capitalist structure. Um, and that means you, you need to either pay for things or to have people do them for you voluntarily. And that, um, that churches tend to profit on the unpaid labor of women in, in their spaces. Um, and they will kind of, how do I say this? Um, that we, we might uphold some unpaid roles and, you know, uh, say, I don't want to devalue the people who are doing these roles because they are really valuable roles. Um, but that, all, you know, if, if people feel like what they're doing unpaid is done in the service of God, they will do it and value it. Um, and then we don't have to pay for that resource. So if we have to pay for it, 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 we just don't have the funds to do it. So there's a kind of, I don't think I explained that very well at all, but there's essentially a market logic or a profit logic behind um, not paying for certain tasks and, Unfortunately, they seem to be done by women. Uh, the next question, um, uh, and probably you can explore a bit more on this question. Um, is it normal to feel conflicted when you're a part of a church that feels uh, isn't inclusive? So maybe it's also how do you deal with conflict when you may be part of a church that feels that it isn't inclusive? Yeah, is it normal to feel conflicted when you're in a ch part of a church that that is not inclusive? Um, I would say it might be common to feel that. Um, I think, I mean, I think I'm thinking back to. I don't know if anyone here listens to the podcast, but Megan Powell-Dutois and Michael Jensen do a podcast called um, With All Due Respect. And they did an episode some time ago called um, something like, can you, can you hate the church and still be loyal to it? Or maybe it wasn't that strong. Can you not like, can you criticize the church and still be loyal to it? And they kind of rounded on the side of, well, yes, I hope so. Um, and kind of said, well, you know, like, Paul was critical of the church. Jesus was critical of religious leaders. Um, uh, you know, so what am I trying to say? I think you can feel conflicted about the churches you are in because we know that, um, that they're full of people and we don't get things right. Uh, you know, that that's me doing amateur theology, right? Like <laughs> we're all broken and we all stuff things up. And, and, 
So I think that it is probably normal to feel some sense of conflict over things that happen in churches. I'm thinking about, um, well, the woman that I spoke about who said who'd been stood down from ministry after she came forward with a story of domestic abuse. Um, and part of what she said was that she wanted to stay because she knew she was she was part of that community and that her salvation wasn't just for her, but it was so that she could be part of the body of Christ. And she wanted to see that that church doing better. So I think, you know, was she happy with how she was treated? No, not at all. Um, but she she did want to stay and work to to be able to positively contribute. Um, which, was she critical? Yes, she was very critical of that church. Um, but she really felt like it was the right thing to do to, to help them um, become a better church. And the church did put a, a policy in place. And she has since said, you know, that she's worked through her relationship with the leaders of that church and feels like they're at a much better place now. Um, you know, um, uh, I think, is it normal to feel that? Um, I think that when you're, if your views are conflicted, yes, we feel tension. Um, and there, there is, there's a lot of there is a lot of work by particularly authors in the UK who um, authors like Sonia Sharma or Andrew Yip who do a lot of work on um, queer Christians in the church and talking about that process of reconciling you know your place in in the church and your love for God but maybe the fact that you've been excluded by your church. Um, and they will talk a lot about how it's a pro it is a process it's not like this kind of easy easy switch from one place to an to another but you go on a process of of reconciling yourself a lot of people i've interviewed have talked about like they'll go on a journey of uh re seeking out more theological books um doing more reading having more conversations with other people um you know to bring other people in on that journey of negotiating and rethinking through some structures. Uh, I'm uh, going to read the question as is, um, but I'm struggling. Um, uh, uh, it's probably used labels that um, uh, are not helpful, but I'll just read the question as it is because I don't know how to change it. Um, but uh, how can progressive Christians relate to evangelical Christians and have conversations of depth and empathy that is not divisive. And so obviously, you know, the labels of progressive and evangelical um, was what I was struggling with and no disrespect to the person that asked the, the question. Um, but uh, yeah, how can we have those conversations of depth and empathy uh, that are not divisive? Mm. Um, so I'm thinking about the person, the service leader that I refer to who prayed a prayer that we would engage in dialogue, not debate. Um, and I think that's a really key approach, um, that probably doesn't matter what, like there are lots, there are so many various identity categories, um, that mean different things for different people. So whether you kind of identify yourself as progressive or conservative or liberal or evangelical or whatever, I think that wherever you sit on that kind of spectrum of, uh, church identities, we'll call them, that being willing to engage in dialogue rather than debate is really important. Um, 
I think that um, obviously that means that you and your conversation partner need to trust each other to some extent um, and be willing to, I think, to have some vulnerability um, in order to be able to talk through the things that you think. Um, yeah, dialogue and not debate. And I think too, that idea of that one of the, the staff members rose, raised about trying to conceptualize your, your, your relationship. So, you know, are you going into the conversation um, thinking I'm at war with this person? Um, if that's your mindset, like if you're a progressive person and you think you're at war with someone more conservative to you, you're probably not going to have a great conversation. Um, and the other way as well. Um, but if you think of yourself as being a, an equal conversation partner, sharing views about um, things that are valuable to both of you um, and that you are just willing to dialogue and to chat, I think that that would do a lot of help, do a lot of work towards not having um, a kind of overly critical or exclusionary conversation. Part of what we're talking about here tonight, centre and periphery, and um, I guess what I hear is that call uh, for unity that doesn't look like oneness, but looks like grace, love and diversity. And uh, that is my prayer. And so thank you all for being here tonight um, with us uh, for Peace Talks. Maybe you could give a reaction down the bottom or show your hands as a, as a thank you, especially to Rosie Claire Shorter. Um, thank you, Rosie, for sharing your knowledge, um, your research, uh, your time, um, and for having this conversation with us tonight uh, here at Peace Talks. We very much appreciate it. Uh, and appreciate you uh, and for your deep listening uh, to both the centre and the periphery. And may there be more listening and more dialogue uh, and less debate. Uh, dialogue and listening that looks like love, uh, that all-inclusive love that Jesus provides, his non-discriminating love for all. Uh, and so thank you all for being here with us tonight. A huge thank you again to Rosie. A thank you to Byron uh, for managing the Zoom call. And a thank you for David Triggs for the technical support here tonight as well. Uh, this is uh, Peace Talks uh, signing off. Uh, please make sure you check us out on Facebook and on the website for our uh, next uh, Peace Talks uh, virtual online. Uh, but prayers for all of you uh, and your families uh, in this time and your houses and uh, your communities uh, and God bless you all.